Hey, buddy. What's happening today? Yoga Nindra. <laughs> like ninja? Nindra. Like, is that J-R-A? D-R-A. Nindra. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying really hard. Okay. Dura. Okay. I wasn't really speaking what, into wait, the microphone n- well. Yoga Nindra. Yep. What's this? Uh Oh, so we did one on Binaural Beats recently. It was this, somebody developed this uh, yoga tone playlist thing that's supposed to help you with a deep sleep. Uh-huh. I think I sent it to you once. So my experience doing it is I don't know if I slept, but I definitely was not there. I like I it came out and it's like, wake up, open your eyes. And I was like, I don't know where the hell I just was for the last 30 minutes. So but you're not actually like in warrior one or anything like that. No, no, no. You're, you're in, in uh you're in, you're in warrior zero on your back <laughs> in a supine position. <laughs> you're sleeping. In yeah. Bed. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. This is for like napping. Uh-huh. But like restful, like a quick, like I didn't get enough sleep last night. I need yeah. to get some yoga ninja. Yeah. It's a playlist on, uh, on also on the tubes. On the tubes. <laughs> Hi there. My name's Tina McGuff and I live in Scotland. And I'm a past guest on the show, and of course, an avid listener of all the podcasts. I'm so happy to be introducing today's show and so grateful to Keith and Rodney for asking me to do this. This is the More In Common podcast and welcome. This is a place where we explore the fact that we have more in common than which divides us by anchoring humanity in compassionate conversation. Now I can actually quantify that a little bit more because these guys are boss at holding an amazing conversation with real empathy and love and compassion. That is literally the words I would use. And I said this on my, I left a review, I think it was on the Apple app, but I did say this on there that I've never had such a conversation where I felt like I was really safe and protected and guided is the real art these these two have and I've learned a lot I actually purposely listened back to every single podcast again to hear how they did that because that is a skill and you know they obviously have it naturally in bags and droves so it's incredible to hear how they do that and it's so gentle and they get the best from the person they're talking to which is as I said before it's a gift So I highly recommend any of those to be listened to. Now remember, you can also find all things More In Common at moreincommonpod.com. There are episodes, merchandise and blogs as well. And definitely, if you like what you hear, give them a like on your favourite podcast app, leave a review and they will try and read them out on the show, that's for sure. And please share, share, share because some of them are fascinating. Some of the conversations are extraordinary. I mean, I am a little bit biased. I have two friends that have been on and uh, I love both of their conversations. So that's Bracia and George Dover. This is season two of 2020 that they have dubbed the decade, a decade possible. And season two is discovery. Discovery actually is a really profound word in my life because I live in what's classed as the city of discovery here in Scotland. And the episode today is with Donnie Meigan, who is a renowned chef, 
and all around lovely, super lovely man. I listened to the podcast and one of the things that struck me was he was talking about his mom and his dad and he spoke about mental illness and suicide. But what he did say was, when you have a crisis uh, with your mental health, put your life on, on pause and get help. And to me, that's one of the biggest takeaways anybody can take from any conversation about mental health maintenance. So I hope you enjoy the podcast today and have a wonderful afternoon. Take care. Bye. The resentment, it is not like a resentment that when I think about it, I instantly get like irritated or upset. It's nothing like that. It's just like, I, I, it's a resentment and like, I wish you felt you trusted me more for you to come open to, to me. That's what I think the resentment probably is the best way to describe it. The shame part is you just put someone you love behind bars or in a loony bin or and your your mind goes to this movie projection of like in a round bounded room with a straitjacket on and just rocking back and forth and chewing on their own tongue like it goes to this horrific horror movie sort of thing and that's like and that really scares you it's like did i just did i just sign their death sentence yeah All right, welcome back. Today we are with Donnie Mygan. So Donnie and I, this is Keith speaking, go way back uh, to high school. You know, we, we've lost touch over the years. Um, so I'm super excited to have a conversation with him after about 20 years uh, to see how life has, has taken him and, and how he's taken us. He's a great dude. He's a chef, a world traveler. He's, um, you know, a person who follows his heart and passion. You know, he spent time in Boston, spent time around the globe, lives in D.C. today. And um, we're super excited to have you, Donnie. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, guys. I'm pretty excited to be here. What up, man? So, What's look, I want to jump in. I want to I want to ask you. So uh, since I don't know you at all, mm -hmm. um, and this is actually a more surface question in the chef chef world, the chefing world. Mm -hmm. cooking world um what i so there's this interesting dichotomy in, in culture where mm -hmm. in american culture where there's this thing that women are supposed to cook right and men are supposed to i don't know not cook even though i cook and a lot of my friends cook <laughs> you're a chef but let's just let's just say we buy that like women are supposed to cook although a lot of the chefs i know in the professional world happen to be men and what I understand about that world is that it is a very alpha-like, aggressive culture. I don't know if that's true. That's just what I hear and uh, what I've taken. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, what, what do you see in the dichotomies between culture outside of cooking and inside of cooking? How does that all play between the, the machismo and the... Uh, masculinity and femininity and like what's acceptable and what's not like what what do you see from being inside that world well um so yeah there's definitely a level of machismo you, i guess you could call it but it definitely comes from both sides it's not just guys uh, a lot of a lot of women i know can be very very eh, um that world too there's a major difference between like when you work in the hospitality business you live to serve people 
Um, so we tend to be a lot more gruntier. Like our, for example, our happy hour for us when we get out of work, our happy hour starts at 11 p.m. Most people, most of you, most of you guys are going to sleep. So we sleep a lot later. We work a lot later. We work a lot longer hours than most people do. So there's definitely that sort of – there's a visceral action, visceral feeling to it. Um, there are kitchens that are super alpha male, absolutely, and they're um, they're not for everyone. They're fading away too, to be totally honest. We've definitely taken an inner look in ourselves because we started to like – with chefs especially. I went through a European apprenticeship program that beat the shit out of me. My nickname used to be lower than whale shit and stupid fat fuck. That was literally what I was called in the kitchen. Okay. Um, which is funny when you like, oh, man, that was my name. I, I, mean, I know, right? It's funny depending on how you present it, right? Like if you yeah. presented it in a, you know, this used to be my name, like it would probably get a different response. But, you know, you present it with a smile. So we kind of chuckle at it, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like than whale shit. And lower than lower than whale shape. You're like he, my, my chef would yell across the kitchen. Hey Donnie, how you doing today? Uh, good chef. He's like, all right, you know you're still lower than whale shit, right? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, chef. And then shut your mouth, head back down, go back to work. Um, and everything where I came from was yes, chef, no chef. So it's very militant. Yeah. Um, and I think with that sort of mentality, you get enough people together. You get enough people alphas together, and that's what really what cooking comes down to. Front of the house and back of the house is always alphas. Like someone who's a beta wouldn't really survive in the hospitality world because it's, you take a beating all day, whether you're getting yelled at by customers because this wine is the wrong one or the food is too cold or whatever the case may be, or you're the guy in the kitchen getting screamed at by your chef or you're the chef taking shit from everyone trying to figure and manhandle this entire thing together. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think your sex has anything to do with it. I've seen women that are like that. I've seen men that are like yeah. that. I've seen young men. I've seen older men. I've seen older women, younger women. Um, I, I've worked with people from all corners of the globe, all over the world. Like, um, so yes, so the there culture, is, but the I think culture it's just more aggressive in general. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more aggressive in general. So from inside and outside, a, jokes, is that, jokes is that are what you mean when you? Is that what you mean when you say women can be? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like to assume. Yeah, like women can, you know, women can be as aggressive, aggressive as militant be. mentality. Yeah, women yeah, can yeah, be yeah. as aggressive as men can be. I've I've yeah. had some interesting things happen to me, too. Now, if I was a female, could I say that I was sexually harassed? I definitely think that there's a there is an answer for that somewhere. Um, but it's also like it is the world we live in. My world, our hospitality world. And I don't want to paint it in a, de- in a bad picture because that's not true at all. Um, but those sort of things do happen. It's like a clubhouse. It's like a team. Teams harass each other. Both of you guys are athletes. I know you know that. Um, so it's very much a team mentality, uh, militant mentality. So is there um, – because I, I want to go into that a little bit. But is there – with the militant, the hierarchy, is there a bit of a camaraderie that comes out of that or with that as well? Some of the best people I've ever met in my life who I still talk to to this day, we only met through kitchens, just working next to them or across from them, having amazing conversations. This is because like you're putting your life essentially in, into a stranger's hand. You need like someone that you can rely on that I'm going to get through this service unscathed. And there are times where service goes so bad and so off the walls, it's the worst beating you can even imagine because it doesn't end. It doesn't end until the clock says it ends. Um, and if you're like way like behind, a, it sounds like a battle. It like is. I, it's I just absolutely read a, book, a battle. I just read a book following like this, like platoon around it's just the interactions between them. It sounds a lot like a, a battle. 
Well, actually, the uh, the entire kitchen is called the brigade, and it's actually taken from brigade, which refers to military in French. So that's kind of where the uh, the idea comes in. The entire thing from chef all the way down to you call them like maybe like demi chef de blanger. That's like a dishwasher, like the the, the uh, youngest rung dishwasher, all the way up to chef de cuisine, which is the highest. There's an entire um, bracket system that goes down. So that being said, there's an absolute camaraderie because where I, where, where, I, where I apprenticed at, only the chefs could eat together. The chefs ate together. They had coffee together. The apprentices were not allowed to eat with them. Yeah. Um, apprentices, commies, and journey cooks were not allowed to eat with them. Only chefs ate together. Um, so, so yeah, it definitely is a major camaraderie there and even a lifelong yeah, I have people right now that if I was if I was dying in service, like oh my god, I'm down two people, I could call them right now, like maybe even later today, and be like, hey man, I'm dying for service. Can you come give me a hand? And they'd be like, yeah, I'll be over in a few minutes, and they'll come and just yeah. help you out, even though they never worked in your restaurant, and they, maybe they were a friend they of yours. Yeah, just like that. So there's a major camaraderie within our business. What were you What were Did you, you alluding that- to on the sexual harassment piece? You were saying like it happens, but it's part of the culture. Like, what were you, what were you getting into there? Well, because nowadays sexual harassment is being defined a lot lighter than it used to be. It used to almost be aggressive, you know. <clears throat> but nowadays, it could be it can be conceived as like adoring someone too much, saying too many nice things about them, too many compliments, even any form of touching something. To me, like a hand on the shoulder and a hand on the hand or on the arm is not offensive in any way whatsoever, whether it comes from a male or a woman or anyone. To me, it's not offensive. That's a normal inhuman interaction. But to someone else who does not like touching at all, that can be received as a sexual harassment, even though in my opinion, it's not. But then again, that is really in the eye of the person who says that. I can't justify what is for you and you can't justify what is for me. So... But there's like I work with a lot of Latinas, okay, <clears throat> and I love Latinas. Actually, my ex-wife is Latina and my fiance is Latina. I have a type. They're beautiful women. I just I'm very attracted to them. I have really light blue eyes, so a lot of a tremendous amount of Latina women I've worked with have commented on my beautiful eyes, and they usually say sus ojos azules están buen, bonitos, o jefe sus ojos bonitos, and that translates to well, your blue eyes are really cute or your eyes are really pretty. Um, now, if a guy were to say that to a girl. Instantly, it kind of crosses that, like, is it creepy or is he just being flirt? You know what I mean? But because it came from her, it doesn't sound that way at all. It just sounds like she's giving me a nice compliment. You see the difference there? Almost of inflection, but also how the perception of it. Like, along with the historical context, like, if you're a woman in New York, you're getting catcalled how many times from your door to work? So, like, that one guy at work who might be sincere, who's just like, oh, man, you look beautiful today. And she might be like... I'm just, I'm over it. Like, I just yeah. had 30 dudes cat call me. Like, stop talking to me. Like, I'm not a piece of meat, you know? And I can honestly attest, the, one of the reasons why I feel this way about that, like, it's not, you could call it equality, but it's really not that. A lot of is the way I was raised. In my house, before, my mother passed away about 12 years ago, but before she did, my mom and dad had a great marriage. They were, I mean, they were, they weren't perfect. They argued, but they never fought in front of us. They respected the children and they respected the home. We weren't allowed. We were never allowed to go to bed angry at each other. Even if you were in a fight, never. You had to go. You had to say, I'm sorry, even if you really weren't. But my mom would make us even she she woke us up at like three o'clock in the morning to do this. Be like, you guys need to say you're sorry to each other and go to bed peacefully. Um, So like that 
my mom was a very strong woman too. She led our household. She was the leader in our household. She was the glue that held it together. So her death in many ways destroyed my destroyed my family. We've never been the same and we never will be. It's kind of sad, but it is sort of, it's my, it's new, my new uh, reality. But my mom worked and she took care of kids and she cooked. My dad usually, my dad worked two jobs until I was in high school and he got like a really good job. Um, so it was me and my sister most of the time. And my sister and I are like really, really, really tight. So we created this bond because she was a female, but I had respect her and adored her since we were children. So that was how women were imprinted on me was to be tough older and or strong. Younger sister? Uh, older. Sorry She's about four years older. older than me. No, it's really fine. So I grew up with tough women. So like I respect a tough woman. I don't, I don't mind seeing a woman tell another guy to fuck off. Like, please don't talk to me that way. Get away from me. I appreciate that. I'm like, good. Stand your ground, man. Um, so that's the way I uh, perceive women. Yeah. Question for you, the key that that reminds me of re- representation, like that talk we had with uh, yeah, with totally. Pete. Um, I mean, that's that's how I, I grew up, right? That's how I have I a up, so. question. I'm so sorry to hear about your mom, like especially okay. you you saying that she was the glue and the rock of the house. Um, kind of, I have a couple questions there, but you said, what did you say? You said uh, you weren't allowed to go to bed angry. And then you said she would wake you up at like 3 a.m. And she was like, all right, you're going to go to bed peacefully. Like, you're going to say, I'm sorry. And you and you also said in there, like, you might have been angry, but you were still going to say, I'm sorry. So is yep. the is the thing there, like, regardless of how we feel right now, we're going to come to a place where we can be peaceful with each other? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We never – my parents never fought. I mean, they argue with each other. They never fought. Violence was never a part of my upbringing whatsoever. Um, my father was a military man. Um, I did make, I mean, I did martial arts most of my life, but like violence and arguing and screaming. And like, when I hear my, some of my friends and like their upbringing, like it breaks my heart. Like, man, I'm so sorry that you grew up in that sort of family because in, in my family, you were just, we, it was never, it was never like that. I've, not, I've never seen that world. That's that to me. That's a that's a that's a movie. It doesn't exist. I've never seen it. So um, when I was with my ex-wife, and G- God bless her, and I really wish her the best in life. I have nothing but great great things to say about her. We just were not right for each other, and we used to fight all the time. So my house that I lived in, that I had built, was not the house that I grew up in, and I didn't want to be part of it anymore. I was like, I can't come home and be angry. Like you you leave the door. You walk outside, you put your you put your guard on that you have to deal with life now. To me, the exact opposite is when you come home, you got to drop that at the door, leave all your worries and cares at the doorstep, and then be in your home. And whoever is in your home as well, it could be an animal, it could be your family, it could be children, whatever the case may be. But to me, like that's what your home is. Home is sanctuary. Home is, home is a mentality of safety. So when it's not like that to me, I, uh, I, can't, I, can't, deal with, I can't deal with that. Yeah. So – Two questions. One, I want to index on something you just said, and it's going to actually go to another question in a minute. But you said fight and violence. Mm -hmm. So, and then you kind of listed off violence as arguing, yelling, screaming, physical. Like, can you explain? Like, because when I think of violence, I think physical, right? Mm -hmm. When I think fighting, I think, you know, arguments, maybe a little bit of yelling, heightened voices. Um, mm-hmm. So help me understand that perspective. I'm, I'm curious about it. I, I haven't heard someone equate the two before. Well, violence isn't always physical. 
I think that's the perception is people always think that if it was violent act, it was it was a physical act. And like I don't think that's always true. A violent act can also be a mental attack on someone to hold them against their will mm. without ever touching them, but putting that fear of something drastically painful, like what is really what violence is. Violence violence causes pain. I think it's a um, maybe the violence isn't the exact word to describe it, but you're basically holding the person hostage under a feeling of fear or feeling of loss. And I mean, I, I knew um, I knew a friend of mine whose parents had a horrific marriage. They were together. They never divorced. But the way he used to talk to her, um, it like it like made me so uncomfortable. I never wanted to be there when he was there. Never. I was like, how do you talk mm-hmm. to your wife like that? And like she was scared of him, like full on scared. I never seen her hit him and I never heard from my friend if it ever happened. But the way mm-hmm. she like. Like my mom doesn't walk around my house like that. My aunts don't walk around. Like I didn't see that. It made me super uncomfortable that you um, could ever be with someone like that. I think violence is the right word. Looking up the definition, uh, behavior involving physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. Strength of emotion or an unpleasant or destructive natural force. I um I think that fits. And it uh (laughs) recently I when we moved like a couple years ago into our place, I was like, man. Moving homes is a violent act. Like it just disrupts everything in your life. <laughs> everything. You got to, mm. um, I think there are a lot of things that have like strong emotional effects that we just don't. Uh, uh, well, many people don't take note of, and I'm starting to kind of take note of them. Mm. Um, but I, I, I picked up on you saying that violence for yelling. Because I'm like, because hmm. you know, I think culturally. Um, we often, you know, I've often heard, um, and I think it's, it's, you know, kind of one of those things is like, if you don't have a healthy relationship, unless you fight once in a while. Right. Mm -hmm. But there is a difference between fighting and not violent fighting from a physical standpoint, but I, or disagree, but then there's a difference between fighter actual, maybe heightened disagreement. Two people may disagree and create an equal level of battle, we'll say, um, by yelling at each other. And that may be the equivalent of me and my wife who have that same disagreement without heightened voices. But there's an equality to to the disagreement versus an actual inequality imparted upon one party by another for whether it's power, control, um, whatever the psychological reason would be to, to actually have that. Based on what you said, Donnie, I think it's an interesting take. Mm-hmm. Based on what you said, would you think, would you say that you could, it's possible to yell without being violent? Absolutely. Like, uh, that's one thing I think I've learned from being a chef. Um, there, you can be like, Hey, let's go right now. Um, now I'm not being violent to you. I'm telling you, you need to work faster. I'm not, I'm not threatening you. I'm not offending you. I'm not attacking you. I'm telling you, you need to work faster. Hey, guys, let's go right now. Let's go. Let's go. Um, and you can say that very loud without making it sound like a violent act. Um, and, you know, actually to what you just said, Keith, about um, the relationship thing. So I think when you're talking about, like, people who are together, any form of relationship, and this could be to child, too. It's not just like – or even your friends. I think one of the most amazing books out there to read is The Five Love Languages by Dr. Chapman. Oh, outstanding. You, it's outstanding. It, it gives yep. you anyone who hasn't yeah. read that book, and it took okay. my girlfriend a little while to get me into it. It like I'm like, wow, that's so true. I just I get what you're saying, man. I'm like, man, this guy's, and it's kind yep. of funny because he has like that Southern Texas draw, so he kind of <laughs> sounds a little goofy too. But you're like, man, he's so intelligent. 
Um, yeah. uh, Donnie, one day, so I want to go back because you you mentioned I, I want to you mentioned your mother and then your parents not fighting. So like growing up in your house, what what was that like for you? And you said a sister. Were there other siblings? I don't know if I caught. Well, I have a brother, but he's not he's not my brother by blood. He's my brother just sort of like a, a unformal adoption just because he's been my best friend since we were uh, children. Keith knows him incredibly well. He was actually at his uh, his dad's wedding. Um, he just, uh, you know, he had kind of a, he had a rough upbringing, so he used to spend a lot of time with us. So he basically my parents sort of indoctrinated him as he's our brother. And to many of his friends, he kind of is like your extra brother. Right, Keith? It's the best way to describe uh-huh. him. Yeah, without, you know? without a doubt. Even, yeah, even like, Rodney knows him. Oh, yeah, you're right. You know Billy. Billy. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Billy. Yeah, so Billy's, me and Billy have been friends since I was three years old. And we met because oh, I wow. punched uh, – I grabbed hair off of his head, and he punched me in the balls. And that's exactly how we Back met. Back when he and had hair? Been, Back when he had hair. <laughs> and we've been, be, we've been best friends ever since. And calling that son of a gun for anything at any time, he's my man. <laughs> to your point where you're asking, though, uh, what was it like? It was – um. I mean, I can't compare it to anything else because, like, I don't have a frame of reference. I just know that, like, um, well, what my parents about comparing were, to what it is now because you mentioned like it shattered the family. So, like, what's the difference? I guess. Oh man. So, in the wake of my uh, my mom, my mom basically spent about four years in and out of the hospital. Um, she had she had fallen down a set of stairs, like a small stairs, and um, she she shattered her leg and she spiral fractured her arm. So there was a long road of recovery there, but then she uh, she had diabetes, so she started getting like blood infections, and then she'd have to have surgery, and then the work would have to get taken out, and then like all these things happened. This happened over the course of four years. My mom also had cancer too; she had ovarian cancer about a year before her accident, um, and she had been diabetic for a while. So there was like all these different like. An amalgam of really bad shit comes together at one time, medically speaking. This was kind of it. Um, so it led to a very general decline in her body, and eventually she was in a wheelchair, and then eventually it broke her spirit, and then eventually she stopped fighting. And uh, mm. I'll be very honest with you guys. There's a, I have a lot of resentment toward my mother that I really don't want to have, but I do because I feel like she just kind of once, – once her spirit was broken, she kind of gave up on her life. And she was such an amazing woman. Like it breaks my heart that she would do that, especially when she had us around here to give her that support. But I mean, there were so many times that I try to get her like out of the house, like mom, let's uh, you know, let's let's go down to the market. I'll put you in one of the little speed things, and we can buzz around the store. And she's she'd be like, no, I don't want to do that. And I was always the jokester in my family, so I was like, come on, mom, it'd be super fun. You crash into shit, accidentally bump into people. I'm like, it'll be hilarious. And she's just like, no, I don't want to do it. And I try this, and it just it wouldn't work. And then like um. One morning, I'm sorry, real quick. The resent piece, um, you said you have it, but you don't want to have it. Why? What's that? Why don't Uh, I don't want to have it because I feel like I owe my mother so much for my life that I shouldn't have. She should be able to rest in peace without me ever having any sort of like unfinished emotions toward her. But I do. I'm pissed at her. I'm pissed at the fact that you just like if you fought a little bit harder, if you told us you needed help more, like we'd have been there, you know, but it, it wasn't. And then uh, my dad was with her the whole time. That's why I have so much adoration for my father. He was in and out of the hospital. If he wasn't at the hospital. He was in bed or he was at work. Those are the only three places you'd find him. He never did anything else. He never left their side. Um, 
And he should have pushed her a little bit more. He should have pushed her to be more like, you know, you have to be on it about your diabetes and your blood sugar. And he didn't do that. And I hold resentment toward him toward that as well. But I know he did the best that he could at the, with the situation he had. He didn't want to force her into a place where she would resent him, but he wanted to be the shoulder to cry on. Um, and I can't, I can't judge him because I've never been in that position. So what the fuck do you know? You know, this is your wife. You know, it's not like a friend of yours or your, your sibling. It's just someone that you swore you would be with until you died. And my parents were very, uh, very old school Catholic in a lot of ways. New school in the fact that they just got annoyed of all the shit, but they, their traditions were very serious. So marriage was very important to them. You know, um, marriage was very important. Your loyalty and your honesty were super important in my household. Um, my parents always told us, you know, you, you live and die by your word. Your word is everything. Your word represents everything that you are. So, um, so yeah, there was some resentment there for, I just wish she just, I wish she just fought a little bit harder. I wish she just had a, a moment with us, but to be totally honest, like they're old school Catholics. So you got to keep that sort of suffer and silence mentality that they have. When mom had cancer, they waited until after her surgery to tell me and my sister, she had cancer and that pissed us off mm. incredibly. We felt like we've been lied to, mm -hmm. but also you have to look at it. As we talk about empathy, look at it from your parents' perspective, they swore they would protect you for your, for their life. And sometimes protecting them is also protecting you from yourself. So I never liked and I never agree with that they did it, but I was, I do respect where they came from. I just wish that they treated us more like adults, that, you know, mm -hmm. that, that resentment, um, curious, does it, does it hang on inside of you because you were ever never able to express it to her or does it hang on inside of you? Like, have you been able to fully, you talk about empathy, maybe you don't agree with it, but, putting yourself in those shoes of, of, you know, bury the, the bury it until it, you know, can't be buried any longer. Like, so you can manage and get through that resentment or do you hang on to it because it keeps you connected to her? Like, I'm just curious of, of how, how, you, how that plays in your life today, 12 years later. I think, um, the resentment, it is not like a resentment that when I think about it, I instantly get like irritated or upset. It's nothing like that. It's just like, mm -hmm. I, I, it's a resentment of like, I wish you felt you trusted me more for you to come open mm -hmm. to me. That's what mm -hmm. I think the resentment probably is the best way to describe it. That I wish you, you knew, my mom was such a great mother. Like you gave me these gifts. You made me who I am. I, I have no sins. I do stupid shit all the time, but I don't hurt anyone. I've never killed anyone. I've never finally acted upon another human being unless they, you know, for, like if you get into a fight or whatever. Unless you like, pull like, somebody's that, hair out, right? Yeah. Well, you get punched in the ball, so you kind of level And also, this over. wouldn't be a great form to uh, <laughs> let, yeah. let those things out. Also. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. But, uh, you know, you, you made me this way to kind of be an empathetic, loving human being. So, like, and to be honest, so if you did that, then wouldn't you want to see kind of if you did a good job or not? Like, is he really going to be by my side? Um, so I think that's probably where the resentment comes from. And, yes, I didn't get to say goodbye to her at all. Um, so mm. she died two days after Christmas in the morning, uh, December 27, 2007. And uh, and it broke. It, it killed us. Like, I, I got to be honest with you guys. Like, you in real honesty, like, it, it killed my family. It destroyed us. Um, I was away at the apprenticeship program, so I wasn't there. And the worst part is my mom was in the hospital. So she used to go to bed around like five or six every day to get up at like 6 a.m. every day to make sure she did um, her rehab while her leg was still sort of healing. And um, 
I was supposed to call it Christmas Day, but we had we had a full bought out hotel and I ended up working from the AM until like 11. So I didn't want to call her, wake her up. So I was like, OK, I'll call her tomorrow. Um, and then she's in rehab the first three hours. So I, I, and I get I, I was in the work in the AM. So, again, I'm like and also we're up in the middle of nowhere. My hotel is like in the middle of nowhere. So you don't have a cell phone. You have to use like where, a pay where phone. Were you? at the Balsams Resort Hotel. It's in upstate New Hampshire. It's like 20 minutes south of Canada. Um, so they didn't no, 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 no one used a cell phone up there. So like, I'll call her later tonight. Then I, then I got busy at work. And before I realized, again, it was like 11, 12 o'clock. And I didn't get a chance to call her. And then that morning, I was like, okay, I'll call her the 27th to definitely talk to her. And that morning, I was woken up by my friend and got a call from the hotel that my mom had died. And that was it. So I, I never even got to wish her Merry Christmas. I didn't, I didn't anyway get to say goodbye to her. And because I was away in my apprenticeship, that she was really happy for me to be there. She wanted me to be there. So I was in a way fulfilling a wish of hers. Um, I didn't get to see her. I, I think the last time I had seen her, um, I think it would have had to have been that summer. So I hadn't, I hadn't seen my mother in maybe like, maybe like three, four months. And then she died. And, and that was, and that was it. And, uh, do you, do you, um, do you, it, so this is a direction every podcast tends to go in for, mm -hmm. from my perspective, uh, not to psychoanalyze you, but to psychoanalyze, do you harbor resentment towards yourself or not? Like given the high standard that you have for yourself based on this conversation alone, um, and the person that your mom did uh you know raise you to be that you ultimately became like do you harbor resentment for not making more of an effort to see her in those three four months especially since those last couple of days before like you just highlighted like there were opportunities but it was like i'll call her tomorrow instead oh yeah i absolutely keep i, I very much uh i hold resentment toward myself i uh, i definitely hold a lot of guilt over that too like if you just made that's why now i said like uh earlier don't don't take things for granted uh, because they're gone. Mm -hmm. It's just like that. I, and I, I took the fact that she was getting better for granted that, that I would have to bury her. And that's, and I did. did and, I, and now, now I, I have to live with that. So that's kind of where I am. What did, so what was the effect on the rest of the family? The effects on the rest yeah. of my family? You said it crushed yeah. the family. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I think after, um, so one of my family members in the wake of her death really took it to heart. She was really close to her and it crushed her and it broke something. It broke something in her and we don't, I mean, I'm not a doctor, so we don't know what it was, but it was, broke something. And after my mom, cause my, my, my mom was cremated. So she's not actually buried anywhere. The urns at my dad's house. Um, so we had a, we had a funeral for her. And on the day of her funeral, this family member had a psychotic break at the at the at the actual funeral before the funeral at my house, um, saying that they were arguing with my mother and 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 that she, this is not the way the funeral needs to be and and whatnot and all these crazy sort of like just things that aren't true. And in front of my family, I slammed that person into a wall. Cause I've never been more embarrassed to see another human being act this way in front of, in this situation. It was, it was embarrassing and embarrassing myself, but also like you're destroying the memory of my mother right now. This is like, we're putting her, we're saying goodbye to her. And, um, 
And so the person came to the funeral and it was weird. It was weird the whole time. And I did the eulogy, which, by the way, if you ever have a chance to do, don't do it. It sucks. <laughs> um, uh, you just have to be very prepared for it. I did the eulogy. And after we after we say goodbye and then we had her cremated. Uh, sorry, after we said goodbyes and our family left and whatnot. Um, my dad, my dad became a shell of himself. He was very much lost without her. Uh, he didn't have anyone to take care of anymore. I didn't live there. Sister didn't live there. Um, so he became a shell of a human being. He became really, really, really bitter. Um, he's always been a kind of a serious and tough guy, but this really made him angry a lot and just incredibly just pissed off at everything around. Not toward us or anything. Just, just very, a very old, bitter man. Um, so, and I think in a lot of ways, looking back on now, now knowing what I know about mental health, I definitely think my mother went undiagnosed. I definitely think she had a very hardcore form of depression. And I saw, I saw signs of it when I was a kid that I didn't really realize I had seen. One of them was she was very easy to get offended. Like she joke around with you all day long. But like, and it wasn't everything. It was only like certain, was certain things about like the way she looked um, that would really upset her, you know, like, and it almost like the, it was like, that was her button. Um, and I remember one time I was really, really, really young. And I think I called my mother fat. And, um, and I remember she just broke down crying and my dad lost it on me. And I, and I had no idea. Like, I didn't even know what the hell the word meant. You know, I think I probably heard it from someplace. You know, I was just a kid. I'm, I'm like a fucking sponge and I'm going to regurgitate whatever you give me. So I didn't know what it meant, but it crushed her. And I, it, like, it made me feel so sad that I, how did you just hurt your mother? Like, what did you just do? Because I, I, I didn't hit her. Because at that age, you understand the concept of hitting, but you don't understand about the word situation yet. Um, so I think there were a lot of signs of her depression. I think she, I don't think she had bipolar or anything. I just think she had a very... I think she had a very medium to possibly severe case of depression um, because, and this is very, and this is something I've come to learn from suicide victims. A lot of suicide victims are very empathetic people and it's that over that oversensitivity of them and around them was what ultimately leads to their actual decision to kill themselves, which is really sad because you're basically telling someone that you can feel my emotions and you empathize with them but that's an overload for them and they can't deal with those emotions. And that's, that's really unfortunate because those kind of people should be revered because having empathy toward another human being that you really feel what they feel is an amazing gift. That's not, that's not a curse. That's a gift. Um, and I think many people who, who struggle with mental illness, them too also feel that they are alone and they feel like they have no one to go to. They have no one to talk to. And a, a lot of them turn to drugs, which is incredibly the, probably the worst thing in the world you could do. A lot of them turn to just they turn to shells of themselves or they lie to the world or they lie to themselves about who they really are because they feel that they're going to get made fun of, that they're going to get ostracized, that they're, they're just going to people are going to label them as crazy. And then and then they lead to these horrific decisions by not caring for themselves anymore. And uh, in a lot of ways, that's what happened with my family. So this family member kind of going into the psychotic break, can mm -hmm. you, like, w did that lead to more issues or challenges? And 
I'd really be curious to, I mean, as you've started to learn more about mental health, because it sounds to me like at the time, mm-hmm. you had no idea what was going on. Am I, is that a fair assumption? Mm-hmm. Like, no. it was just, oh, don't yeah. make an ass yeah. out of what's happening right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, literally. slamming them into the wall, right? Um, I, what I understand now more than ever about mental health is just preventative, and the sooner, the better. The moment, the moment's recognizable. The moment that you, you think there's something not there, you you, you need treatment right there, right then and there. You gotta stop what you're doing, put your put your life on put your life on pause and get that fixed, or at least get it looked at and get it under control. So, what's the diagnosis and what's the the journey been for you as a family member? We've talked, you know, we've talked mm-hmm. a lot about mental illness with people who struggle with it, but as a family member. Like, what's that journey been like for you alongside this family member? Um, it's a lot of introspection because you really have to understand that mental illness is a disease, but it's it's not a disease that you can quantify by just looking at it. Like if you had diabetes and every hour you were checking your blood or you brought out your needle or your like glucophage or whatever, I can physically see you working on it. You know, if you have a broken bone or you have like a, you know, one of the most, one of the more neurological diseases, but like muscular dystrophy or cerebral palsy, like you can physically see what that does. Um, Mental illness does not work that way at all. It's a hidden, it's gone, it's away. And there's so many different triggers to it. It could be, it could be a, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. It could be just like, it's just been sitting there and bubbling. What happens a lot, and this is some of the research I've done that I found really interesting is it's so rampant in teenagers, and a lot of it is because their their frontal lobe is not fully developed until they're about 24, 25 years old. And because that, a lot of that has to do with cognition. So they are overly sensitive and they over-assume emotions. That's why I think it's really safe to say a 21-year-old will never be as responsible as a 25-year-old. And you can see there's a major difference in those two worlds. That's not always true either. Don't, 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 don't uh, put that in uh, verbatim. But, uh, on average, the, but on the general average, population. Like, that, it, it is it's a, a bet it is that a, I would love a general statement, but a true one, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that right there is very good to know that, okay, my kid may not have a mental illness, but might have the onsets of what might cause one when they're a teenager. So maybe during their teens, rather than screaming at them across the table about something ridiculous, talk to them. To talk to them, to ask them about their feelings. Hey, how do you feel today? Feeling good? You know, or I think parents, if parents started doing that a little bit more, I know I'm going to do that with my kids. Absolutely. I want to know how you're feeling all the time. Um, I think if parents started doing that a little more, we might be able to di- like have more diagnosis and have a lot more research being done on, on this because it is a, it's a spider web of a disease. It's not like you call it mental illness. That's, that's one one way to call it, but there's so many variations and so many onsets and, and things that it goes on and on. There's so much research that needs to be done um, that I've learned isn't being done. There's a lot, but we need a lot more. If it's true that one in four people have have a form of mental illness, then that kind of tells you right there, this this needs precedent, the likes we which we've never seen, if that's how, how it is. Um, Does the person, the family member... As you so you talked about introspection when you answered mm-hmm. Keith there. When you think back to knowing them prior to this, did you, are there things that you saw that yeah. that kind of hinted towards something? Yeah, um, this person was always very overly sensitive to a lot of things. We got really mad really easily. Uh, we get happy really easily. 
And I thought that a lot of it was me. Like I thought it was just me being, cause I, I have hyperactivity. Uh, I have ADHD. I was diagnosed when I was a child. And, um, so I have just a natural energy and I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. So we're loud. That's how we talk to each other. Um, so I thought it was me. I thought it was just me not, I thought it was me not being, being kind. My mother used to always say to us, like, if you're going to be anything today, just be kind, you know? Um, and I, I thought it was, I thought it was me not doing that. So I like kind of back away. Um, and it would happen roller coasters and, uh, there were a lot of fighting, you know, between our family members and stuff that would happen just like kids fighting with parents sort of situation or like, you know, kids fighting amongst each other. Cause we were, we we're all roughly around the same age that this was kind of going on. Um, and uh, I'm a little younger than this, than this person, uh, but not a whole lot once you get out into the world. But at the time I was a lot younger than them. So, um, so yeah, there was, there was definitely a lot of signs as a kid that I didn't see, but also I didn't know if you were looking for them. Did either. you say what the diagnosis is or can you say? Um, it's a manic depressive disorder. So what, what that, that means mean? in a nutshell uh, is when you're bipolar. very, yeah, when you're manic, okay, it means you have like this can, like an unconcernable amount of energy that can be focused on something and it can go very high and it can go very low. So when your highs are high, like you're, you're ready to take on the world. You're going to write a PhD today. You're going to go run for Congress. Like you're a high is high, but your low is fucking low. I mean, you don't, you, you can't get out of bed. And that's like where it lies right there. Can't even get out of bed to get a glass of water or to take a piss. Like that's below it goes to that. Um, is there a spectrum for that? Like, oh yeah, is one manic depressive's low different? I can't see. Is one's low different than another's low? Or? No, I think what that has to do with is that you can't really quantify everyone together in the same realm because whatever a low for me is might not be a low for you. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's really on how the person perceives and feels that low or feels that high. For some people, it's so bad that I have to end it all and I need to, I need to die. You know, and I don't want to, I don't want to blame anyone for this. I don't want to poison anyone with this. I need to die. And then there are other ones that just feel that way. They don't want to die and they're not going to do anything of that nature. They just feel like complete and utter shit. Yeah. I can't say if there's low, I'm not a doctor. This is just like, you know, it was me being a family member and my, my research on it, uh, reading a lot about it, just trying to understand from them about like when your low is low, well, what can I do to make you a little, little bit higher? Like where, 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 where can I sort of fit into that without giving you any more discouragement? Yeah. You know? Even if it's what just like giving, can you do? sometimes it's just giving them a yeah. reach out, give them a quick text message, a little phone call. Hey, how you doing today? Um, and when the person kind of builds that trust that they can say I'm not too good today, you could be like, okay, I just wanted to check on you. Tell you I love you. Make sure you're okay. Tell me if you need anything. Maybe drop by their house out of the blue just to say what's up. You know, and that doesn't always work because sometimes they might just shut the door or not even answer it at all. Um, little things like that. Just to let them really know that you're not alone and I'm thinking about you and I love you. That's really what you all you can no, do clinically. is be patient, be patient. I think clinically, I, mean, I think that's such a great, especially in the depressive side of bipolar, bipolar, you know. Um, and wait, so, so the a, question, you said bipolar. So yeah. bipolar, manic, depressive, synonymous? Yeah, yeah so, yeah. One, so, so one size they actually took manic, depressive. manic depressive out of, 
Yeah, so they took yeah. uh, clinically out of the American Psychological Association. Manic depressive is not a clinical definition. Just uh, it's I mean, yeah, so just, they don't use that bipolar term anymore. Now, right? Different extremes of everything. Yeah, uh, it's just bipolar now. Uh, but which is regardless, probably, probably the best one to describe, I guess. Yeah. So, like, uh, so as a family member, like you, like you said, you, I mean, you do what you can. That patience, like. How long did it take you to learn that patience managing with this? And, and how does it, like, how do you manage if this person's on the manic side of things? Because um, it's a whole different manifestation, right? A lot of fear, to be totally honest. Like, when, so when this, ha when this happened, this was, um, that was in you know, Christmas. I went back about two weeks later um, to my apprenticeship. But before I, before I did, about... About two days after my mom's my mom's uh, funeral, um, this person had a massive break, and they were staying with us, and they had this massive break where like they weren't even making any, like coherent, coherent sentences anymore. It was like yeah. like suddenly opening up a door and just saying something that made no fucking sense whatsoever. It was like they were literally living their own reality in their own head, and I had seen this before, but in like people who use drugs. I've never seen like just a normal human being live, live that sort of way. And the reality they were living was nowhere near us. So we sort of ran out of options. We tried to get them to go to sleep, just try to calm them down and nothing was working. And it just kept happening like for the next like day, day and a half. So, so finally we decided to bring them to the hospital and once they found out we were going to the hospital, I was sitting behind the person and I was restraining them in actual jujitsu hold against the back of the chair because I was afraid they were going to kick my father. And she and uh, they started kicking the, the dashboard and kicking the windshield. And luckily, we were really close to the hospital. And we went in. The, they came to take him. And we, we was downstairs. And this was like, like, like I said, it was two days after my mom died. So we're outside smoking. We're all smoking cigarettes. And... My dad just looks at me and he's like, is this really my fucking reality right now? Like he can't even perceive. And even I was kind of feeling the same way, but I just didn't know what to, what to feel. I just wanted to be focused on the task at hand. Um, that's how I felt too. Like my mom just died. And now this, like what, what the fuck is happening to my life? Mm. You know, I just like, I just two major things, major, major fucking things that could destroy a family. just literally just happened to me. Like what the fuck, man? And as so anyway, um, after this, after this, after the uh, doctor did their initial evaluation, they decided that it'd be best to keep them there, but they cannot do it without a family member's signature. And since we're um, sort of adoptive of the family, um, my father couldn't do it. He was like shaking, so I did it, and uh, I've never been more. I've never been more ashamed of myself in my whole life from doing that. Uh, mm. even though mm. I knew in my heart of hearts, like this is the right thing to do, you know, it's the right thing to do. It doesn't What's change the, the shame fact. Part, then? Huh? What's the shame part of it then? The shame part is you just put someone you love behind bars or in a loony bin or, and your, your mind goes to this movie projection of like in a round dotted room with a straight jacket on and just rocking back and forth and chewing on their own tongue. Like it goes to this horrific horror movie sort of thing. And that's like, and that really scares you. Is like did I just did I just sign their death sentence? Yeah. And uh, would you and what's your perspective on it now 
that yeah i mean obviously that was at the time when you didn't have any real experience with this so now like how has that changed i mean it brought tears to my eyes just thinking about it again because it was really really painful but it also i know what i did was right i know i know that and anyone else who who has ever put in that position you you're doing the right thing and sometimes the right thing doesn't isn't is never the easy way it's never the question easy how do you is there any so the some of the stuff you mentioned some of it's hollywood mm-hmm. also some of it's real like there have been some really messed up things that have happened inside of mental mental institutions mm-hmm. in this country and in others is there a way to as a family member evaluate or like gauge the place that they're going or is it just kind of like showing up and being there so you understand that the care that they're getting is good or what what, what would you recommend so the actual i think it's it might be the american psychological association Maybe them or their governing another governing body, but they have full control over all psychiatric units across America. So they can do inspections and jump ins at any point. Most of the horrific things that I uh, that we've heard about, like like lobotomies and shit like that, mm-hmm. um, most of that's been completely all of that has been completely eradicated. That is not part of any form mm-hmm. of, of of current modern day medicine. I think those have been outlawed since the twenties. And uh, even the use of straight jackets and stuff, they don't use straight jackets anymore. They just they, they strain you to the bed. So you're just locked in your natural position. And that, that, they do that long enough to give you a sedative to relax your body so you won't be, so you won't be violent towards yourself or anyone else. Um, what I learned about them was really good, actually. Uh, it made me feel a lot easier when we went to go visit for the first time. Um, it's a very nice community. It, there's like, they use a lot of warm colors. They use a lot of wood like very warm, natural, like it's a very tranquil environment. Um, it's very open. You can see everything that they have. You're As a family member, you're allowed to walk around the entire unit and see everything. It was a little scary going in, didn't know what we were going to see. You can't wear anything. Um, you can wear pants and a T-shirt. You cannot wear any strings. You cannot have anything with you whatsoever other than uh, the shirt that you're wearing. Even if you're wearing like a blouse or something that has any strings on it, you cannot wear that. Uh, they'll give you a, a, a bathroom smock to change into, a, a, a nurse's smock to change into. Um, so there is like a little bit of reality there is you cannot bring anything in. And then like even when you bring them clothes and stuff, the doctors go through all of their stuff and they catalog what you brought in. Um, you're not allowed to bring in certain um, – you're not allowed to bring in any sort of hygienic um, stuff whatsoever. They use they, – they supply all of that. Mm-hmm. So – there is a level of reality you have to realize what you look what you're walking into but there's also like a level of like comfort of like okay these are actually getting good care and um most people have a lot of different nurses that work on that will work with them throughout the day they have groups they go to um and what they're really kind of doing is they're really trying to find the perfect cocktail is the best way to put it but the kind of medicine that's specifically for you that you need and then they kind of work you down and then work you back up. And it really depends on you. It depends on how, how bad your break was. It depends on the effort that you put into it. Um, but there's there's miracle cases of people having psychological breaks and then returning to reality and life as if it never even happened. I mean, they still may remember parts of it, but it never happened. They're amazing success stories. So to your question it was scary at first but once i got in there and saw their operation it made me feel a lot more calm that this is this is the right place i I appreciate your your journey on that now we've been 12 years since that break Um, you've read and researched a lot like 
patience has been a thing, especially on the low end of how is this family member doing today? And, and what, what's changed for you as it relates to managing mental illness and mental health since then? Um, you know, we can make a lot of assertions based on some of the things you said, but I'd, I'd like to get, I'd like to ask you directly on that from, from your point of view. No, that's totally, that's awesome. Actually. Um, they're, they're, they're doing fucking fantastic. Um, they found what works for them, went through a lot of other, it was a very long, hard road, but they went through a lot of therapy and they did it all themselves. To be totally honest, I wasn't there most of the time. This is just from talking and visiting. I was really away cooking, uh, most of this time. So this was a journey they had to take on their own. Um, very proud of this person where they've, where they've gone, where they've been and where they've gone to now is just two different worlds. Should be super proud of themselves and know what they've, and know that you're like, that's incredible. Should be very, very happy with yourself. Uh, um, from what I've learned from it, a patient sort of thing, uh, it helped me a lot. Um, so my girlfriend and I were actually joking around about starting our, not a podcast, but a YouTube channel. And it's called Real uh, Real Relationships. And we actually already bought the name of it, but it's called Real Relationships. Uh, if you look it up now, it's just like people like jumping into each other and all these like super over dirty dance move, like movement, like love things. It's weird. But we we're talking about doing a podcast, uh, a, a YouTube channel about relationship goals. And we have like guidelines for fighting, for example. So the first guideline is no yelling, no, no yelling. As much as you want to, you cannot yell. Number two is a huge one. No name calling of any kind whatsoever. All right. Number three, no bringing up shit from the past. If you have something you want to bring up or talk about, you need to talk about it at that time. Or when you're ready to, but you can't bring it up six months down the road because I left a sock on the fucking side of the bedroom table six months ago. Like you can't do that kind of shit. Take um, it up. Take it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and by doing that, by having like an established platform of how we disagree, we can argue with each other about anything. And at the end of the day, we still agree to disagree and we still love each other. And we've had, of course, we've had like fights where we go to like, oh, we're, you know what? Maybe, maybe we should just take a break for a while. But then like 30 minutes later, one of us is like sliding into the room like a cat and trying to be like, hey, you know, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean it. <laughs> so I think learning that patience has really helped me. It's definitely helped me as a chef in the kitchen. I have – I've been complimented many times. So I've worked in some really intense kitchens. I don't work for like chain restaurants. I run for like power-hungry chefs driven for Michelin and James Beard Awards. Um it's helped me. I've been complimented many times on my patience or how calm I am about when shit goes sideways. Um, I think it's definitely that's that's one of the best benefits I've learned from it. It's really helped me learn a lot about myself. Um, I don't drink very much. I uh, in my world, alcoholism is huge. So I decided that I used to always stop drinking once a day. Oh, well, sorry, once a week. No matter, no matter what happened, that one day a week I will not drink. Um, because this is like a vicious cycle you get into in our, in our business. But then now I've gone to the op- opposite way is like, I only drink once a week now, maybe maybe twice a week. And there's a certain occasion, but now I only drink once a week. Um, and I don't drink the way I used to at all. Um, so a lot of more self-control, a lot more, um, lust for life. That's the reason why I'm kind of taking a break to do some writing. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I would say probably help me out with. So, so how has this like changed your overall mindset on mental illness and mental? I mean, you go from slamming this person into a wall, right? As you said today, you would say, go to a doctor, 
but just in managing it and navigating it and helping family members do it, right? Because that's such a critical component for people who are struggling. Like, how has it changed your mindset? And like, how how would you, like, what are some key things you would suggest to other people who have family members who are struggling with it? Don't be afraid to have that conversation. It's That's the hardest part is just getting to, don't don't be afraid to have a conversation. That's probably the hardest part of all is just admitting it to yourself that this person might have something and you can't help them. And you know that you already, and that's, I think it's the thing that's probably one of the most, what, what makes it so scary is you cannot see it. You cannot fight it. You cannot fight it. This person has to learn how to fight that on their own. And so you cannot help them. Mm. All you can do is just be there. You can support them. Other than that, that's it. I think it's the most scariest thing. And if, as a parent, I would imagine, cause I don't have children, but as a parent, if it happened to one of my ch- my children, I'd probably be terrified. I just want them to get better. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely taught me um, be patient. I cannot like stress that enough. Above all else, is patience. Be really careful of the words that you use when you just when you talk back to them. Be very careful. You don't want to say something that's going to set them over the edge. You don't want to say something that's un- that's unkind. Or you, the worst of all is you don't want to say something just out of pure anger, and then you realize later, no, that wasn't the right thing. I shouldn't have said that. Like just be careful with what you say. And then lastly, just let them know they're not alone. There's so much help out there. You have Google on your phone. Just Google. You can find the lo- like near hospitals. You can most. Oh, there's a lot of psychiatrists that will do a free diagnosis of just um, just just for a little consultation, and they'll go from there. Like there's a lot of help out there, especially with the influence that we have of the internet. There's so much help. So be patient. You know, and you're not alone. That's the best advice I could give them. Uh, so Donnie. First, I want to thank you for being so honest and open about, you know, difficult topics. You know, and this is these, you know, as we always talk about mental illness and and the journey for everybody is is such a conversation that matters. So I really appreciate you graciously sharing um, uh, your story and everything that you talked about today. Um, But we have to wrap Mm -hmm. for, for time and... Um, with that, as uh, Rodney always likes to, likes to ask before we wrap up, what would you like to leave our many, many, and it is many now, followers and listeners with? So there's an old French proverb, and I cannot say it in French, but it's it's always rung very deep into my soul, and it's a toast, and it says to you, kitchen. When facing your ovens infernos, I sometimes discover paradise on earth. And it basically means that even in the worst of your times, the hardest moments of your life, great things can still come out of it.